We're in Psalms 141 today. Psalms 141, this is an individual lament. And when I say lament, what I mean is that grief or, or sorrow. It's an individual lament, Psalms 141. And this type of psalm was often associated with the evening sacrifices that took place at the temple. They, these prayers, these psalms, they would be prayers offered to God in time of distress. They would be offered to God where the individual or the community would plead with God for his deliverance. And throughout the psalm today, you'll see a little bit of the structure. If it helps, you can kind of keep this in your mind. In Psalms 141, we're going to have an introductory cry. We'll have an invocation, a prayer. Then that'll be followed by the lament, the description. There'll be a confession of trust and an imprecation. And if you want to know the bottom line up front, captured, I think, in the clearest possible terms, it is compromise. That's the theme of Psalms 141. It is a prayer against compromise. More specifically, it is a prayer for God to protect the faithful person against all insincerity and compromise amid such dangers. And so we look at verse 1, Psalms 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. There is a, a frequent and urgent tone that the psalmist is conveying here. There is there's an emergency that has happened for the psalmist, possibly for the community at large, as he urges God, as he urges Yahweh to respond in a timely manner. And then, as quickly as this urgent tone comes, it leaves. We go to the very next verse. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. As quickly as the urgency of verse 1 came, it's now gone. We get to verse 2, and it almost seems to undo this stress that was put on verse 1, in which you may ask, as I have, well, was there really a problem? He kind of was freaking out in verse 1. Was there really a reason to, to be upset? Was there really a problem? Is there really an emergency? It kind of seems like he's like, hey, hey, I need your help in verse 1. And then we get to verse 2, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm heading to small group tonight. Okay, is everything all right? Like, you're freaking out in verse 1. In verse 2, you're like, gone to a worship service. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Is there an emergency? Is there an issue? And Yes, spoiler alert, there, there is an issue. More, more about the issue in a moment. But I want to work backwards a little bit from verse 2. He, he makes a reference in verse 2 to this evening sacrifice. This evening sacrifice this may have been a grain offering or it could have been an animal sacrifice. But in this agricultural society, this is as good as coin. It's as good as swiping your credit card. This is giving. He is giving. Which makes it all the more strange. Where in verse 1, it almost seems like the psalmist is this hurting child. And Yahweh is this father being urged to give immediate attention. And now he's giving a gift to God. He's giving an offering to God. And it just is so peculiar how it's set up here. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the beginning of verse 2, he says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Incense could have referred to the smoke coming off from the altar, from the sacrifice, or it could have been some type of spices to accompany the sacrifice itself. But the point here is that it pleases God. It's a pleasing aroma to God. He's coming and he's offering this gift to God. In a short while, we'll take an offering. We'll have an opportunity to also give to God. 
But once again, it's like, wait, if there's this emergency going on, he's essentially at a worship service right now. And he seems totally fine. In fact, he, he goes on to say, he says at the beginning of verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense. Which once again, I thought was a little strange because is he saying, I'm going to, instead of giving, making a sacrifice, whether it's a grain or animal sacrifice, I'm just going to say a prayer instead. Let my prayer be counted as well, to be clear, lest we misunderstand what the psalmist is saying, there is no word for with. No word for with, lest this give a false impression. Prayers would be accompanied with offerings. He's not saying, instead of giving, I'm just going to pray, and that'll basically be the equivalent of me making a sacrifice. Not what he's saying at all. Prayers would not be substitutes for offerings. They would be accompanied with such offerings. And... I like to ask people occasionally how they're doing. I like to say, how are you doing? And sometimes I hear, well, not so good. Maybe we'll probe a little bit more and ask, how are you doing spiritually? Tell them, how, how, are, how are you doing? How's your spiritual health? Well, pretty much non-existent other than just praying right now. And don't get me wrong, like prayers are great. Prayers are important. Um, but lest there's any confusion what the psalmist is saying, uh, it's never simply a substitute for other aspects of worship or obedience to God. Giving, like the context is here, or fellowship, or participation, or, or serving. And yet, of course, this isn't even the main point of verse 2. See, the main point of verse 2 is the craziness that he shared going on in verse 1. It's still happening. And despite the craziness going on in verse 1 that he shared about, notice what he's doing. He's, he's praying. He's essentially gone to a worship service. He's participating with the people of God. He's worshiping God both in this and the offering he's making. And you might say, as I said, He's gone to this worship service. That's so strange. But that's the main point here. That's the craziness of verse 1 is still in play. It hasn't gone away. The crisis situation that he spoke of in verse 1 when he says, Oh Lord, I call upon you to hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. That's still totally in play. It makes me think of Martin Luther. Perhaps you've heard the quote before, the paraphrase. He'd say, I try to pray an hour a day. And then when life gets really, really hectic and crazy, I try to pray two to three hours. Well, hold on a second, Luther. That doesn't jive, right? You try to pray an hour a day, and then when things get crazy, you pray two to three hours? No, no. When things get really crazy, you don't pray more. You pray less because you don't have the time because your time's pulling you in other directions. No. Luther would respond if he was here. No, that's not what I do. When, when the craziness increases, my prayer life increases because I need God that much more. That much more. It doesn't necessarily sound right to perhaps some of us. It's kind of countercultural within Christendom because for, I think, a lot of us, when life gets crazy. Our spiritual priorities, they're the first things that go. Money gets tight, what's the first thing that goes? Time gets tight, what's the first thing that goes? For people within Christendom today, it's these spiritual priorities, and yet what does the psalmist do? See, this is why when we read verse 2, it sounds almost disruptive in the flow. He's got this crisis in verse 1, and then in verse 2, he's essentially gone to this gathering of the people of God, and he's in the middle of praying and giving an offering to God. That's why it, it comes off as kind of disruptive. And we question whether life was really as urgent as he made it sound in verse 1. Because for most of us, when we have gotten into this place, habit, that is where we hit the pause button, in those moments, on all the spiritual things of significance. When, when the craziness comes of verse 1, our tendency is pause. 
hitting the pause button on the things that really matter and not just the things that really matter, but the things that can truly help us the most when our world is turned upside down. You know, John Piper, he tells a story. He tells a lot of stories. But I love this story because I think it beautifully illustrates the psalmist story. There was a woman in his church and uh, she had just gotten news that her husband was, I don't know, stage four cancer. He had like a month to live. And uh, his health quickly deteriorated and it was at a point where he could go any minute and he, um, he died that morning before their, their worship gathering. And Piper had gotten a message um, from her saying that her husband had died. He begins preaching, and uh, then up at the balcony, he does a double take, and he can't believe it, and there walks in the woman whose husband just died about two hours earlier, there. (laughs) And he was thinking, what what are you doing here? Like, your husband just died two hours ago, and, and, and you just, what are you doing here? He asked her this after the service, and she said, I need to be here today more than ever to hear about how great our God is. Like, now, more than ever, do I near, do I need to hear proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Like, I need to hear about the magnificence and glorious great God that we have in our moment of deepest hurt and crisis more than ever. And yet, for most of us, in those moments of crisis, we essentially hit the pause button and literally, we do the most, the worst thing we probably could do. Well, not for that woman. Uh, She realized exactly what the psalmist realized. (laughs) Even though his life was crazy, the the psalmist, he still makes time to pray and worship God. (laughs) I love this story. I love this story. There is a real crisis at hand. Verse 3, he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with the wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Set a guard, verse 3, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. He has in mind something dark, something devious, something deceptive, something plotting, something premeditated, something quite evil. Quite evil. And he asked God, Hold me back from this form of speech. This is not simply a matter of hasty or hurtful statements emerging from his mouth that he's concerned about. He's disappointed. Well, whatever that, right? Bad word that. That's not what's on his mind. It's, it's much more evil than that. It's something much worse And why does he ask for this guard to be over his mouth? Why does he ask for this door to be over his lips? And the answer is because there is a temptation for him to use his speech in a way that dishonors God. To use his speech in such a way that he becomes like the people he is asking protection from. That's his concern. To put it a different way. We need protection from other people's attacks, sure. But we also need protection from other people's influences. And perhaps he feels himself slipping 
to the external pressures and to the internal pressure he feels. Maybe to give in to the external pressure to go along with whatever it is that they're saying or inviting him to. There is a pressure from within and without to join with these people in the way they use their speech to further the scheming. That's what he is asking God to protect and guard himself from. And here in verse 3, he recognizes that he needs God to do something for him. He needs God to turn him into the sort of person who wants to use speech for the furtherance of truth, not his own interest. And that is something I think we also need more than we realize. So what does he do? Well, he prays. What does he pray? He prays that God would act. He's tempted and he feels pressure to cave. Bottom line, there are people inviting him to join in with their lot and he feels pressure. He feels pressure. He can feel his heart prone to wander already. And so he prays to God. He prays that God might persuade him to act in the right way. He prays that God might persuade him to act in a way that he would not otherwise act if God wasn't there to help enable him to act in the right way. Did you get all that? That can be kind of tricky. Is the psalmist responsible for his actions? Yep. And yet he prays that God would persuade him to act in the way that he's supposed to act. Yep. He prays to God that he won't sin. And some might say at this point, well, if that's his logic, right? He's praying, God, I need you to persuade me because my tendency is to go this way. So I need you to persuade me to go this way if this is the right way. And if God doesn't persuade him, then whose fault? Someone might say, well, that's his logic. God's at fault. God didn't persuade him. He gave in. Well, no, he's still responsible for whether he joins in with these wicked people. He's still responsible. And yet he knows that he desperately needs God to persuade him to act, to act in such a way that will bring him to the right path, that will bring him to the right action. It can be hard to wrap our mind around that because here we have colliding the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. He's responsible to do the right thing, and yet he knows that apart from God helping him, enabling him, he won't. He won't. See, there's a little bit of tension there. Tension, not to be confused with contradiction. You think this is hard. Think about the Trinity for a second. Is God one or three? My guess is you would all say to that question, is God one or three? You'd say, yes. Well, how does that make any sense? I don't know. The Bible says it, so I'm taking on faith. I believe it, right? Man's held responsible for his actions, yet the psalmist feels this temptation. He pleads to God to persuade him to act in a way that he wouldn't otherwise act unless God is involved. He needs God. He can feel himself slipping away. Oh yes, there, there might be a little tension, but no contradiction. The Bible says it. And this becomes to us, I think, an example. A really good example. If God could not do the thing he was asking him to do, I don't think he'd be praying this in the first place. I don't think he'd be praying this in the first place. And then it serves as a reminder that no one can be sure of maintaining today's commitment tomorrow. Because we're fickle creatures. Think about that. Wait, like, no one can really be sure of maintaining today's commitments tomorrow. How do, you, how do you maintain the commitment that you made today, tomorrow? It can be hard. 
from the person who makes the New Year's resolution that they're going to run on the treadmill every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or whatever, right? You know, it could be hard. So, how can you be sure? Especially with our fickle emotions. I mean, some days we're here, other days we're here. It's just all over the place. Good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks. How can we be sure of maintaining the commitment we make today, tomorrow? And yet, this is, I think, gets at the heart of the issue. He needs Yahweh, he needs God to exercise decisive influence over him for good. In the same way a family member or a friend might do, but times it by, I don't know, a million? He needs Yahweh to exercise decisive influence over his life to help him, to protect him, lest he slides down that road. And this is why he prays the way he does in verse 3 and 4. God, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Don't let my heart incline to any evil. I know it's already inclining. It's already slipping. It's already going down that road to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. You think about job descriptions. Oh, he's a lawyer. She's a nurse. He's a worker of iniquity. I mean, just to capture, lest we breeze over this too quickly. That's the description he gives of these men who are pressuring him to cave. Get the lawyers, the doctors, and the guys who work sin. It's really what they do. It's all they do. They work iniquity. compromise. Well, that's the situation he's faced with. Well, how will things play out? Verse 5, he says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. I don't know of anyone who says, I like being smacked in the face, right? I like being hit in the back of the head. That's a whole lot of fun. And yet the psalmist says, it is a kindness. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When I think of compromise, I think of the strangest and that's putting it nicely, ways people fight. They pray, if you can call it that, like a guy told me last month in North Carolina when I was with the Army. He said, yeah, I remember praying, God, please don't let me get any different diseases. And I said, why were you praying that? He's like, oh, because I was going around sleeping with as many women as I possibly could. You were really praying that? Yeah, I was being really sincere about it too. You know, like, like the guy who, who, who says, God, I'm going to go to this party. I know there's going to be drugs and alcohol, and I know that that's such a major problem for me, but just help me, Lord. Help me not to give in to temptation. And of course, you're all thinking, well, why would you go to that party in the first place? Why would you put yourself in that situation in the first place? Why would you endanger yourself, regardless of what it may have been application-wise? Why would you do that? Uh, you know, but a lot of people do. We could say, oh, they fight kind of passively. I don't think they fight passively. That's just stupid. I don't even think that's fighting, right? But people do. But that's not what the psalmist does. The psalmist prays, but the psalmist also takes action. What does he say? He says, let me not eat of their delicacies, right? Whether it's a festival or whatever's going on. Maybe he's been invited to a party. He's like, I'm not even going there. At the end of verse 4. Furthermore, he says, I, I, need, I need some people in my life that will help me. He's committed, number one, not to place himself in a compromising situation in which he might act in a sinful way, but he's also committed, he's also committed to having people in his life to help him. Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Makes me think of what Solomon says. Better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. 
He makes a commitment, the psalmist does here in verse 5, to having the right people in his life who don't simply tell him what he wants to hear, but he tells him what he needs to hear. Tells him what he needs to hear. Why might he say, let me not refuse it, in verse 5? Let him rebuke me, it's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Why might he say that? Well, I think he says it because it's uncomfortable. As I said earlier, I can't think of anyone that likes getting hit on the head. I can't think of anyone that likes getting rebuked. It, it stinks. It's unpleasant. And by nature, we tend to be really defensive when this happens. By nature, when the righteous man comes into our life, we tend to refuse it. And he knows that that might be his, temp- that might be his, his natural inclination. He's going to hit me. I know I need to be hit. In fact, it's essentially like oil for my head. That's a good thing. But yet I know that I'm not going to want this when it comes. So God, help me to be receptive of that. Not what I want to hear, but what I need to hear. That's his prayer. Oftentimes, we like to think, oh, we're good. No, that's pride. So many people are not committed to avoiding dangerous situations. And and we see Christians get lured into these dangerous traps only to just get hit. I I used to use the example, be like a a soldier telling his squad leader, I'm going to go on a walk by myself. I'm just going to go take a stroll in downtown Fallujah, right? Think of the beginning of the Iraq war. I'm just going to take a stroll. You're going to take a stroll by yourself in downtown Fallujah? Are you crazy? That's the whole point. Like that, That's just so foolish. But we often do that as Christians. We underestimate the enemy that we are against, and we are fools. But thankfully, the psalmist, he doesn't do that. He sees the benefit, uncomfortable as it might be, to have the sort of people in his life that he can count on in those moments in those moments in which he is being pulled into the darkness. And so he makes a commitment. He makes a commitment, I'm not going to eat of their delicacies, I'm not going to their festival, I'm not going to the party, whatever he may have been invited to. And oh, by the way, he makes the commitment to having the type of people in his life. And obviously, this isn't always something that's comfortable. Getting smacked in the head as he metaphorically puts it in verse 5, it's not always something that is comfortable, but it's always something that is beneficial. Or have you not heard that it was said, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Obviously, this is not always something that is comfortable. Good smack in the head, it's, it's not but it is always something that's beneficial. And we come to the end of verse 5, and then we begin to get into verse 6, and we get a glimpse of an imprecatory prayer. He says at the end of verse 5, Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. So we get this example of this imprecatory prayer. This imprecation. Remember when I first heard about imprecations? I, f- I didn't know what they were. It sounded like something that belonged like in a Harry Potter film. Like, oh, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to go to my class against the dark arts and learn about imprecations. That's, that's how it sounded to me. Um, but it's obviously biblical. But this is imprecatory prayer. It's prayed against the wicked asking for their demise, and then including the graphic imagery of how the psalmist depicts the termination of the wicked people. When their judges or rulers or leaders are thrown over the cliff, then they're going to get it. Then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. And of course, there's other imprecatory prayers. I'm thinking Psalms 139, verse 9. It says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. 
right? There's some hard imagery. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, your little babies, and then dashes them to pieces against the rocks. So that's Old Testament stuff. No, there's New Testament imprecatory prayers as well. The imprecation he prays is, may their leaders be thrown over the cliff. His, the imprecation that he prays is, God, stop them by any means. Of course, New Testament examples of this would include something like Galatians 1.8, where Paul says, Anyone who comes and preaches a different gospel to you, oh, by the way, even if he says like an angel brought it to you, yeah, don't believe him. Also, let that person be accursed. I was on the phone like two or three weeks ago. I was on a three-way call with my best friend, Roll, and his wife, Lexi, and then this guy, Mario. And Mario was a part of uh, the Church of Mother God. I believe that's what it's called, the Church of Mother God. It's really big, came out of South Korea. It's essentially this guy back, I can't even pronounce his name. I call him Asian Jesus. Um, because that's who they think he was. He was the second coming of Christ. There's about two million people worldwide that follow this. Uh, and they essentially say that cr the second coming of Christ already happened, like back in the 80s, with Asian Jesus. And here's this idea, right? When Paul talks about, you say, what's a New Testament example of an imprecatory prayer? It's Galatians 1.8. Anyone comes to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Even if he says he got it from an angel. They come and they say there's a, there's a different way, there's a different truth, there's a different message, there's a different hope. He may be accursed. So that would be an example of a, a New Testament imprecation, imprecatory prayer. Can you pray them? Yeah, you, you can pray them. The psalmist prays them. No, you can't pray them simply because someone messes up your order or, you know, you ask out somebody and they shoot you down, probably not what the psalmist is alluding to by principle. So what sort of situation may lead us to pray this type of prayer? Well, more probably in detail for the sake of brevity and small group, but perhaps the biggest difference between the Old and the New Testament in regards to these sorts of imprecatory prayers is that in the Old Testament, they were prayed against a specific enemy or hostile nation, such as here, no doubt, group of evil men. Well, in the New Testament, the enemy is typically a spiritual enemy. Perhaps you even prayed imprecatory prayers and you didn't even realize it. Maybe it was something like, God, my friend so-and-so has just gone so off the beaten path, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you'll do whatever you have to do to shake them up, to get their attention, that they might hit rock bottom. You'd probably be like, oh, really? Probably prayed an imprecatory prayer and not even realized it. The big difference in the New Testament, there's a spiritual enemy. Where here, he's got a physical enemy he's dealing with. There are men who want him dead. And so verse 7, this, the psalmist views his situation very bleak. He views it that there's only a matter of time before death overtakes him. Remember verse 1? Oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I called you. Why so urgent? Because people want him dead right now. Well, here in verse 7, it's revealed in full. In this vivid sense, we, in this vivid sense, we see the imagery of a, a farmer preparing the ground for agricultural purposes. And then in the very next line, he completes the line of thought of why he's doing that. Notice verse 7. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Imagery, farmer goes out. He breaks up the ground so then he can sow the seed. He can plant the seed. But he's replaced the seed. See? So shall our bones be scattered? Barring from that agricultural metaphor, you break up the ground, then you sow the seed, and the ground is broken up. He says, my enemy is sowing our bones, my bones. My chopped up pieces of my body. That's the graphic imagery that the psalmist is portraying. His enemies aren't just content with killing him. That's not enough for them. They are so savage, so evil, so sick, so twisted, they want to mutilate him. As they go, and instead of scattering seed, scattering body parts. <laughs> 
And then you realize the urgency is absolutely real from verse 1. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. He doesn't say scattered at Sheol, rather at the mouth of Sheol. So two things to explore here. Sheol. The King James Version translates it hell. The NIV will translate it the grave. The ESV translates Sheol, Sheol. So there it is for you, right? Not super clear. What is the Sheol that he's going to be scattered at the mouth of? Well, I got to learn this in my Psalms class back in seminary. Sheol is definitely not, as the KJV says, hell. Because both the wicked and the righteous go to Sheol. They both go there. The difference, as Dr. Yates, my seminary professor, would tell me, told our class, is that the wicked, it seems, go there before their time. Both the righteous and the wicked, when you die, where do you, where do you go? You go to Sheol. I thought we go and we're, we're with the Lord, right? To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Well, yeah, but you're understanding that through a Pauline lens in his letter to the Corinthians. But the understanding of what the afterlife was like was not nearly as clear in the Old Testament to these saints. This idea to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, yeah, we get that. Not super clear from them. They, they had some, as best we can tell, they had some maybe understanding of an afterlife, but it was not nearly as clear. And so both the righteous and the wicked, they go to Sheol. And as we see, there seems to be, in the understanding of Sheol, two compartments, one for the righteous, one for the wicked. And you kind of see that depicted in the New Testament gospel with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember that story, that there is this ability that they're both there and yet separated by a chasm of such. But this is, this is where he believes he's headed, to the mouth of Sheol. And... The reference to mouth is no doubt a reference to Canaanite mythology. Within Canaanite mythology, Mot, that's M-O-T. He was the god of death in the underworld. He was the chief adversary of Baal, the god of fertility, the storm god. He was depicted, Mot, as having these monstrous jaws that was described swallowing his victims whole. His mouth was described as stretching from the earth to the heavens, his tongue, to the stars. And this is the situation that the psalmist finds himself in. He's not thinking he's going to be killed. He's thinking he's going to be killed and mutilated and on his way to the mouth of Sheol, to the afterlife. It's life and death. It is a real crisis and they want him dead. Why do they want him dead? Well, I think quite possibly, even though he doesn't tell us why they want him dead, they want him dead because he hasn't compromised. Because he hasn't given in. We don't know for certain. The text doesn't tell us. I think it's quite possible. That's what most commentaries guess. That's probably the reason they want him dead, that they're furious and they want him not just dead, but they want to chop him up and mutilate him. Because he hasn't given in. He hasn't caved. And so the psalmist prays his enemies will be caught in the very traps and snares that they were setting to harm him and others. But my eyes are toward you, verse 8, toward you, O God, my Lord, and in, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the, let the wicked, let them fall on their own nets while I pass by safely. And so it begs the question, my premise, right? What's the story? The story is one of compromise. The story is the psalmist battling, right? Battling the pull from the world, from the people around him to compromise, to give in, to cave. Why do people compromise in the first place? I think people compromise because they want to. They want to compromise. Our, our desire says, I want this. And then what happens? Well, my biblical view gets in the way. I think that's, that's what happens, right? Desire says, I want this. Oh man, I got the Bible in front of me now. How do, how do I work around this? People often 
compromise in order to accommodate their own desires. I want this. Well, what's in the way? Oh, whatever's in the way, I want it out of the way. People often compromise to accommodate their own desires. So what do you do? What do you do when you're in the sort of situation that the psalmist finds himself in? Well, I think you should probably fight like the psalmist does. And how does he do this? Verse 4, he, he says, God, don't let my heart incline to any evil. Don't let my heart incline to any evil. Don't let my heart go there, God. You join with the psalmist, as he says in Psalms 86, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name, because God, right now, my heart is so fragmented, it's going a million different directions, it's thinking about a million different things other than you. I remember growing up in church, and usually I was just told, don't sin. <laughs> Maybe not quite as simple, but it's just, a, just don't do it, right? That's not bad advice, especially if you shouldn't do whatever that is. I just don't know that it's always the most helpful or the best advice, right? What does he do? Uh, he prays, and then he fights, and then he commits. God, protect my mouth, Lord, because I'm really tempted to give in and start talking and saying and speaking ways that all these people want me to, all these, whatever they are, dishonoring, not truthful. And then he makes a commitment. I'm not going to eat of their delicacies. Back in verse 4, I'm not going to go to the places where I know that I'm going to be pulled in. And oh, by the way, I'm going to have people in my life that will speak truth to me. That's what he does. Look what he says in verse 8. But my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. My eyes are towards you. Why? Because I imagine for the psalmist at this point, there's really nowhere else for his eyes to be. There's no one else who can help him get out of the jam that he finds himself in, out of the crisis that he's in at the moment. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I got this. Why? That's pride. That's foolishness. I'll be okay. No, you, you might think you will. I mean, what is there's a Bible verse about that, right? 1 Corinthians 10. 12 and 13, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. He knows he's susceptible. Aren't we all? You want to fight compromise? Great. You need to see Jesus as more desirable than the things that are tempting you away from him. My eyes are toward you. That's a good start. What's a good place to start if you're feeling and dealing with issues of compromise? Verse 8, Keeping your eyes on him, on the king. That's a, that's a good place to start. How do I do that? I think a great way to do that practically is by opening this book. Real practical. I think that can be really helpful. Bottom line, the truth is, when we want to sin, we are very hesitant. Hear me now. When we want to sin reality, we are very hesitant to affirm truth that contradict that sin. See, that's where the righteous man comes into play in verse 5. If I want to do this sin, my natural inclination is to not think, huh, I really want to do this sin right now. Yep, definitely want to do that. What's a good Bible verse that tells me to do the opposite of the thing I want to do? We don't think that way. That's not how we think. We're not, like, we're not, we're not thinking that way. If anything, we're like suppressing the truth. Or anything like, oh, Bible's open? Nope, closing that. Because I want to do that thing right now. When we want to sin, we are very hesitant to affirm truths that contradict to tell us no to the sin we want to do, whatever it might be. And once again, that's the benefit of the verse 5 individual. Everyone wants to be, I find this to be true, more often than not, everyone wants to be the righteous man. Very few people want to have this sort of person in their life. Despite the benefit, the benefit of having a righteous man or woman to say true things to us that will help us. See, when it comes to compromise, we like to justify it, move the lines, or say, well, it's not really breaking the rules. It's just bending it and downplay it. But the truth is, 
Sin, because that's what compromise is. If you didn't know, if you're not following. The truth is, sin is more than breaking rules, it's picking teams, guys. I'll say it again for a fact because it's, it's worth hearing. Sin is more than breaking rules. It's picking teams. And then it begs a further question. What team are you picking? I realize people don't really want to acknowledge this because I think it's too convicting. Super convicting. Convicting for me. Sin's more than breaking rules. It's picking teams. Because no doubt it's going to beg the question in that moment. What team are you picking? What team are you playing on or signing up for? Satan or Jesus? The enemy, the adversary, or Jesus? That's what you have before you. No, every one of us needs help, both from God and from verse 5 people in our lives, because every one of us is at risk, even pastors and, I don't know, Christian authors? Pastors are at risk? Christian authors are at risk? Some of you guys know Joshua Harris? Joshua Harris, I kissed dating goodbye. I'm sure you guys have heard of Joshua Harris, right? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, still with me? Came out in the news last couple weeks, he and his wife splitting up, getting a divorce. It's always heartbreaking. It's always like, it's always hard. Whoever it is, Christian, non-Christian, comes out, I guess his wife says, I'm no longer... A Christian. She's got all these, I don't know, hashtag ex-evangelical uh, things on her social media. And at which point I was like, okay, well, that's rough, but you know, I, what is he supposed to do? His wife's just gone off the deep end. She's left him. That's kind of how I perceived it. And then two days later, he said, you know, this has been circling around in the news, and that's only part of the truth. That's true. My, my wife is no longer a Christian, but neither am I. You wrote this book and other books like you were a pastor at a church for a while. How does it happen? Compromise begins somewhere. He went on to explain that the reason for his, as they call it, deconversion had mainly to do with the LGBTQIA. issues of today. And he apologized for his positions, uh, telling people, you know, telling anyone who loves somebody that what they're doing is sinful. Um, And he said basically that really ultimately just broke him down to where he says, I am no longer a a Christian. You think about feeling pressure to cave? You think the psalmist is feeling pressure possibly the the reason they want him dead because he hasn't caved but we all know we all know he's he's hanging on it kind of seems like he's barely hanging on he's barely hanging on i was kind of barely hanging on to the raft yesterday the the inner tube when we were uh, at the lake at at different points i was barely hanging on and i think for the psalmist in a sense he, he is barely hanging on no doubt that's I think how many of us feel at different times, whether it's the pressure to cave on the LGBTQIA agenda or to compromise in our own personal temptations, but oh, that God would help us to recall what the psalmist didn't do. That's my, that's my prayer and hope for us. You feel pressure to compromise, to cave? Oh, that God would help us to, to recall what the psalmist didn't do. And what he did do. He didn't hit the pause button when it comes to his walk with God. That's why it strikes us as so strange and disruptive when we come to verse 2 because he essentially is like, listen, I'm in crisis mode, there's an emergency. And then verse 2 is like, oh, I'm, I'm going to the next worship service. I'm actually in the process. We're about to take offering time. I'm, we're, we're having time of prayer. He didn't hit the pause button on the things of spiritual significance, on worshiping God, on giving to God, on praying to God, and gathering with the people of God. 
In fact, I'd say those were the most vital things he did do in this moment of crisis. At the heart of compromise, here's a big thought right here. At the heart of compromise is the belief that Christ somehow is not enough. The heart of compromise is the belief that Christ is somehow not enough, which inevitably leads us to hitting the pause button on the things that God has ultimately given us to help us in our time of need. Our hearts are prone to wander. The wise person clings to the stories like these and imparts the strategy of the psalmist. My prayer is that we would be wise too that we wouldn't run from the gifts that God has given us in our darkest hour, that we would welcome the righteous person in our life, and that we would cling to Christ alone. I feel the pressure too. I know you feel the pressure. I feel the pressure, right? Whether it's whatever is a social norm or pressures to give in to temptation, it's the there. It's knocking in our door every day. So what do you do? You recall the story of Psalms 141 and then you implement the strategy that he used. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. I want to pray because that's what the psalmist did. And uh, while it was hard, it worked out pretty well for him. So God, we love you and we thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Lord, we thank you not just for dying on the cross to make salvation possible, but we thank you for dying on the cross and enabling us to walk in faithful obedience to you. Protect us from unbelief, God, that somehow you are not enough in those moments of crisis, in those moments when compromise is just pulling so hard against us. We need you, Jesus, as always. So help us. We pray this in your name. Amen.